0: This morning I'll be reading Proverbs chapter 16 verses 1 and 2 and verses 18 and 19. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It is better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. You know, pride is a pride is an ugly thing. Uh, pride is a destructive thing. We all know this. I think intuitively we see it in life. You know, it was when the Titanic left Southampton, England, <coughs> uh, that it was deemed the unsinkable ship. It was unsinkable. It was purported that the Captain John Foster had said even God could not sink this ship. We see the... The hubris, not just in our technical world, but just in our personal world. You know, Proverbs was written to give us wisdom in life, to, to help us to live skillfully where specific law is not clear. It's it, trying to give us this theology and street clothes, if you will. Proverbs helps us fight this temptation, this succumbing to the sin of pride. It helps us. Pride has been uh, one of the greatest sins and vices throughout human history. I mean, it, it, it strikes the high, the low, the young, the old. You know, John Adams, our second president, said, be not, or excuse me, he said, um, that was God that was going to say that, not John Adams. <laughs> so you guys that are real, I want to clear that up right now. This is John Adams. I believe there is no one principle which predominates in human nature so much in every stage of life, from cradle to grave, in males and females, old and young, black and white, rich and poor, high and low, as this passion for superiority. We, we want to be first. We want to be, we want to be the best. Now, it's only in recent times that this pride has received quite a makeover. It, it has gone from being a vice to being a virtue, Th- that it's almost right that, that this love for self-esteem has just taken the world by force, self-worth, self-confidence. We see it across the board. I, I, I was always told, don't brag, don't speak about yourself as a young child. Uh, but now it almost seems appropriate to proclaim the wisdom of your child on a bumper sticker. Everybody knows the academic excellence of my child. Now, technically, I guess I'm kind of happy we didn't do it when I was growing up because I wouldn't have gotten it a bumper sticker is the problem. But, but we, we have this, this encouragement towards self-esteem, self-love, self-promotion. So a survey was done by a college board, and they surveyed 1 million high school students. And in this survey, 2% rated themselves below average in leadership ability, 2%. When it comes to getting along with others, getting along with others, teenagers, 0% rated themselves below average. 60% 60% rated themselves in the top 10%, and 25% in the top 1%. Now, you don't have to be an accountant to know that doesn't work. But this is this idea of self-promotion, self This is the key to success. The, the modern wisdom is the key to success, the key to wisdom, the key to contentment is self-worth, self-esteem, self-confidence, assertiveness. And yet what we're going to find in the book of Proverbs is it's actually the other way. It's it's counterintuitive to what we hear. It's a path of humility. It's a path of, of humbling yourself, which will lead to joy, rewards, and actual life. You won't pick this up. It's not something that would come to us unless it had been revealed and God has revealed this to us. So in Proverbs when you go through the book you're going to see this tension. There's a warning and a promise. A warning against pride and a promise that humility leads to life. So Allie read one of the verses in 16:18. He says, "Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It's better to be of lowly spirit with the poor. It's better to be of lowly spirit with the poor." Then to divide the spoil with the proud. Or in 22, 4, the reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. So you have two ways placed before you. You know, one is to move in the modern wisdom of the world regarding pride, self sufficiency, or this path of humility. I'm going to argue that humility is the way to go, that that's what we cultivate, not self esteem, but. We create his esteem. We don't create self-worth. We magnify his worth. So first, here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at a definition of pride. Try to understand, expose it, so that you can maybe see it in your life. And then once we expose the nature of pride, then we're going to look at, just for a moment, at its dangers. It's very, very dangerous. And then we're going to look at a deliverance from it. How do we walk in the path of humility? How do we cultivate it? So, frankly, just simply put, I want to expose it in our hearts so that we see it, we find it odious. And then we look at it and we say, this is horrible for me. This is going to ruin me. And then we're going to pursue it. together. As a church, we do this. So let's first expose it in our own souls. What is pride? Well, when I'm speaking of pride, I'm not speaking about a job well done. Just last week we talked about work, working with the gifts of God, for the glory of God, kind of so that we can look at a job that's been done well, we've worked hard, we can be satisfied in it. I'm not speaking about that. The pride I'm speaking about, I think the pride that uh, Proverbs speaks about, it is where it's at its core is self-love. There's a preoccupation with ourselves." There's this excessive thought given to my loves, my concerns, you know, the things, that can, the things that affect me. It's a kind of a soul bent inward, that everything is through the lens of, how does it affect me? A couple of theologians give us some helpful descriptions. One said, it's a blend of self-absorption, narcissism, and an overestimate of our abilities and worth. Another one said it more simply, he said, a proud person thinks a lot about himself and thinks a lot of himself. This is the nature of pride. So, so how does it manifest, though, in our lives? How can we identify it as we look at our own lives? Well, first, I think the easiest one probably is self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is that we look at our lives and we, we consider ourselves morally right. That we look at our choices and our religion and the way we treat people and we say, very good, very good. Uh, this self-righteous person will tend to look down on others and, and, and condemn them easily for not doing what you may do. <clears throat> this idea of kind of turning your nose down. Uh, the poster child for this kind of self-righteousness would be the Pharisee in Luke 18. So when Jesus gave a parable, he was talking to the religious leadership. And, and, you know, most parables will always have a context given to you. So the first couple lines of a parable will set the context, what he's speaking to. And in Luke 18, it says it clearly, it says he was speaking to Pharisees who trusted in themselves and held others with contempt. That's what self-righteousness can do. We hold others with contempt. In this parable, the Pharisee, two men walk into a temple, a Pharisee, a holy man, and a tax collector, a sinner. They walk in, the Pharisee just goes right up to the front and looks up at God as if you know he has that right, and he says, God, thank you that I'm not like these other sinners, these other men, these adulterers and tax collectors and so forth. I, I tithe and I fast and I pray. And, and so he's both condemning others and promoting himself. So the, the, this is the sin of the religious. This is the sin of those who are making much of religion. We tend towards a self-righteousness. Jonathan Edwards has a word for us on this. He says, the spiritually proud show it in his fault finding with other saints. The eminently humble Christian has so much to do at home and sees so much evil in his own heart that he's not apt to be very busy with other hearts. So there's a self-righteousness. You'll see this if you begin grading people based upon the morality that you may espouse. But not just self-righteousness, self-glory. Self-glory, that's just you look at your life, you look at your accomplishments, you look at your reputation, and and you say, wow, that's really good, I've done super. I I mean, the self-glorying person tends not to share a lot of credit with others who help them get there. It tends to be a lot more I, 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 and not so much we, we, we. Uh, Self-glory can manifest itself in conversation, that we tend to end up talking just aloud about ourselves, our business, our families, our jobs or whatever other thought we have. It's kind of that conversational narcissism. It's just a lot of life is about us. Proverbs warns us, it's not good to eat too much honey, nor is it glorious to seek one's own glory. So the poster child for this one might be, mirror, mirror on the wall, who is fairest of them all? You know, this evil queen from Snow White, just looking, wanting to be the best, wanting to be the first, wanting to be seen as the most excellent. So that, that, that's an evidence of pr- also self-reliance would be another a variety of pride. A uh, self-reliance is just where you don't need anybody. You never ask for help. You never seek instruction. You never seek counsel. Uh, you don't handle reproof very well. You're not open to correction. You're resistant to conviction, you know, that you have enough knowledge between your ears and experience in life that you really don't ask anybody anything except maybe the few experts now and then. And Proverbs warns us, he says, whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool. So think about that. Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool. So, so the proverbs are encouraging that collective wisdom, seeking wisdom from others. So the self reliance. Now, let me give you one more though, because pride can manifest itself in the dark underbelly of pride. Let's say is self pity. Self pity. What I mean, I don't mean that poor me. I mean that constant refrain of I'm not thin enough, I'm not pretty enough, I'm not strong enough, I'm not smart enough, I haven't done well enough. Self pity looks helpless, but, but oftentimes it, it, only, it only looks helpless so that it engenders other people to think what a hero they are for suffering so well as they have. Self-pity, can it's that dark underbelly of pride, that, that woe is me, because you know, c- pride just wants to be center. It can be center for evil or good. It doesn't have to be all good. So when you look at your life, where do you see these manifest? Maybe it's in your position. Maybe the success you've had, the, the, the rungs of the ladder that you've climbed in ministry or management, or, or perhaps the, the landscape of your, you know, the positions you've attained at work. It can be in position. It can be in possessions. The cars you drive, the vacations you take, the food you eat, clothes you wear, houses you live in, that that, that can become a source of, yeah, I've accomplished something. Or maybe it's the people you know. You know, the, the dropping a, a local name that's popular or a national name. It, that gives you social capital. That brings in some attention. Maybe it's the people you know. Maybe it's the religion. Maybe it's the theology you hold. You know, that, that you look at your theology and anybody else that doesn't hold to the same exact theology, that they're just somehow less than you. You see it in competitiveness. You see it in harshness. You see it in defensiveness. Uh, we want to identify it. We really want to, because most of us it's the one sin that really is hard to see in our own life. So there's a survey done on the seven deadly sins. I preached that, a series on that back in, I think, 17 or 18. And uh, pride is the first of the seven deadly sins. They're called deadly because that's what they do to you. They, as we're going to see, they decreate you. Um, but only 12% in the survey said they struggle with pride. Only 12%. What would you have said? Is that a struggle point for you? Again, Edwards gives us his wisdom. He says, it's the most hidden, secret, and deceitful of all sins. Charles Spurgeon had the courage to say that it will, be the, it will go out with the last breath. That, so resident did he struggle with pride. C.S. Lewis, who I'll be quoting a bit, not because I'm preaching on him in a couple weeks, but just he speaks to pride. Um, in fact, he spoke much to pride in these... Um, in a series he gave on BBC during the Second World War. It's incredible to listen to. But he says this, this is, <clears throat> There is one vice which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people, except Christians, ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular, no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves, And the more we have it in ourselves, the more we hate it in others. This is the nature of pride. So pride defined. It's self-righteousness, self-glory, self-reliance, self-pity. If you don't see it, may I encourage you uh, to ask. And Carol and I always do this, usually right before a sermon. You know, where do you see this in me? Invite someone into your life. Uh, It it may be challenging, it may be sometimes embarrassing, uh, but there's great profit that someone else can speak to that which you might not. You may be legitimately looking and you need the wisdom of another. So that's, that's pride kind of exposed. But what are the dangers of pride? Maybe you're thinking right now, what's the big deal, Tom? I mean, it doesn't do any good just to hate yourself. That's not pride either. Remember, that's self-pity. It's just the underbelly of it. What are the dangers of it? Well, well, let me me give you a few to consider. It dethrones God. By that, I mean that pride is the oldest sin. Satan tempted Eve saying, do you want to be like God? This is the way to be like God. It dethrones God. it's, It's contesting his supremacy. It's wanting to be like God. It's wanting to grasp that which is associated with the divine. I want that, and I'm going to have that. And you see it in the rhetoric, oftentimes, of people that are bold and boastful in themselves. One one preacher said it this way, pride is the cosmic crime. It challenges God for being God. While other sins lead us away from God, the sin of pride attempts to elevate us above God. We want to be equal to God. And this is why God hates it. And that's why in Proverbs 6, he says, there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are abomination to him, and the first one is haughty eyes. Haughty eyes is kind of wanting to be first, best. Again, Lewis says, as long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see anything that's above you. So it dethrones God. It makes us forget God. It pushes God to the side. It, it makes our, it, it creates a secular, sacred divide. Well, I'll well, worship God on Sunday, but you know what? The uh, six days of the week, I'm the king of the hill. I'm running the ship the way I want to run it. So it dethrones God, but but it also divides people. You recognize that pride can't occur in a vacuum. Pride needs other people so as to prop themselves up. You, You need others, and what this does is then it brings in dissension and disharmony and division when we begin doing this comparative analysis with people. That's why he says that where strife is, pride is, Proverbs 13. That where pride is, there will always be strife. And wherever you find strife and conflict among people, there will be pride. Somewhere lurking beneath the surface, there will be pride working. Lewis has a word for this. He says, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud because of being rich or clever or good looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. It's the comparison that makes you proud. The pleasure of being above the rest. So so it divides people. It creates uncertainty. There isn't transparency. And there isn't vulnerability. Because it's always on point. We're always engaged in some competitive angle. And then ultimately it'll destroy us. It destroys us. We've been created... As image bearers, we've been created to worship and enjoy God. This is why people that pursue, whether it's sex or money or or professional advancement, they're never satisfied. God has created us so that we would find our best in Him. But to move God out of the center and to put ourselves in it will ultimately decreate us. So we're called to behold God. Jeremy even said this in worship, uh, to behold God we're being changed from glory to glory to glory, but we're beholding him at the center, but if we're in the center, we're not being changed from glory to glory. we're being changed into our own image uh, but, but and, and pride speaks to this. he says in Proverbs 16:18, pride goes before destruction in a haughty spirit. Before a fall. Do you see that? Pride goes before destruction. So when you see destruction, pride has already existed. So pride doesn't just destroy us. It spins off. It's called the mother of sins. Think about it for a minute. Pride gives birth to sloth. Why? Well, being proud, I don't think I should have to work as hard as everybody else, so I'm not going to work. So it gives birth to sloth. Uh, Pride gives birth to envy. You know what? I deserve everything that they have. I, I should get what they have. Pride gives birth to lust. You know what, it's my pleasure, I'm entitled to this lust, and so we we tend to use people for our own own satisfaction. So pride gives birth to all these other sins. So here you have pride, it's dethroning God, it's dividing people, and it's destroying ourselves. But, But here's the most incredible thing about pride, is it denies us to see the glory of the gospel. When we think that we have it all, or we have more than others, we feel self-righteous, or we want the glory, we don't see our incredible need for the gospel, and we don't see the beauty of God's grace in the giving of Christ. This is why Jesus said in, in Matthew 9, he says, "And When the Pharisees saw this, Jesus was eating with tax collectors and sinners, and when Jesus saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. We don't think we're sick. This is why Jeremy picked, come ye sinners. You know, he's inviting sinners. The problem is we can't get people to understand the nature of their sin, or if they see their sin, but they're not as bad as over here, and so... Pride blinds us from the, from the only hope that we have to be reconciled to God. A gospel calls forth for a humility. That's why he says, let the little children come to me, to such as these belong the kingdom of God. Why? Because they're humble, they're needy, and they know it. They don't mind crying when they have a need. They don't mind asking for help when they need help. And you know it isn't long before they start. You see the pride replace the humility. You see it in the early years. It begins to just manifest itself. I I, I pray that if you're here, you understand that apart from this humility, you'll never see the need that you have of Christ. Tell me yourself. I don't want you to neglect the mercy of God. It's a counterintuitive way to come to God. It's not, look at what I've done, help me finish. No, it's, please, look at who I am, be merciful to me. That's the way we enter the faith. So, so the dangers of pride are ultimately eternal separation from God when we don't humble ourselves before his mighty hand. So what do we do with this? How do, how do we get out of this? What's deliverance from this kind of pride that really is resident in every one of our souls? Uh, Well, let me give you four things to consider. And and I I really, because it's of such a nature, you know, pride has always been seen the mother of sins. We, we, We have to get this down there's four things i 'd like you to consider first, a, a deliverance from pride, a pathway out of pride is by fearing the Lord now when i 'm talking about fearing the lord i 'm not talking about fright, like scared you know like you would be if someone jumped out behind a corner i 'm talking about a, a reverence for the majesty of God and this isn 't easily gained it 's trying to understand God in His glory and his greatness and his power. So John Calvin, the great a reformer said, We must infer that man is never sufficiently touched or affected by the awareness of his lowly state until he has compared himself with God's majesty. It's only when you hold yourself against God that you begin to understand the fear of God. And this is what he says in Proverbs 3, he says, Be not wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord, and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. There's a pathway out of pride by getting a good dose of the greatness and the glory and the magnificence of God. To begin to see Christ in all of his glory makes us at the center of the universe seem silly. So how do we do this? How how, how do we gain this, this grasp How do we grasp this understanding of God? Well, you can start with something as simple as look out the window. Look at creation. I mean, begin to go out on a starry night and and try to understand what it means billions of stars. Or or look at the vastness of the ocean and, and just consider what does it mean to create all this and to maintain and preserve all this. Or look at your own bodies and the uniqueness of your DNA, and the complexity of an eyeball. I mean, these things are given to us to help us have a right understanding of the glory of God, is what we see in Proverbs 30. Listen to Proverbs 30. Uh, Many people don't understand. It says, surely I'm too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. In other words, you're saying that at the end of the book. It's a book on wisdom. And you read the book and say, I have no knowledge. What in the world is he talking about? Well, here's what he's talking about. He says, who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established the ends of the earth? He gains all this wisdom and then he comes before God in creation. He says, I'm I'm an idiot. I thought I had wisdom. I thought I understood life. There's a massive humbling going on. God did the same thing to Job. Remember he said to Job, hey, where were you when I made the morning? Hey, were you there when I filled the storehouses with snow? Tell me, tell me, where were you? So, so God has given to us this theater of his glory to help us walk in humility. But not just, not just looking at creation, not just creation, uh, but thankfulness. You know, when you look at yourself and you look at your life and you look at the accomplishments you've achieved, how often do you thank God for those things? How often do you say, God, thank you for that? It was a good idea. Thank you for that idea, God. Uh, You were able to serve in a certain context. Thank you for that. In other words, pride cannot take root in a soil of gratitude. It can't do it. Remember how Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, he says, what do you have that you didn't receive? And and why do you boast as though you didn't receive it? So even the ideas that flash into your mind or the works that you do that you receive credit for, how often, because to give thanks to God for who I am and what I have and the grace that's been given to me, the opportunities that I've had, the opportunities that I've utilized, for all those things, God, thank you, thank you, thank you for those things. you, You will be led out of pride into humility because you'll know God's given those things to you. Did you exercise strength in doing it? Yes, you did, and thank you for that. And I thank him for the grace that you have, the strength that he gave you. Not only that, another way in terms of thinking about God is, is trying to develop humility is also by considering uh, judgment of pride. God will judge pride. This is a warning. God will judge pride. He says in 16.5, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. The warnings in Scripture aren't meant to kind of cause you to step back and tremble. They're just, they're calling you to sobriety and they're calling you to wisdom. Warnings are leading you to wisdom. So that's the first thing. Fear the Lord through creation, through gratitude, through recognizing that there'll be a final day. And then secondly, get an honest appraisal of who you are. Like like get a real understanding of who you are. Uh, so let me say it in an in a inverted way. This is from um, a scholar, Richard Rayburn. He said, one of the worst features of our pride is its breathtaking dishonesty. The fact that we indulge illusions about ourselves that are ridiculously easy to disprove. We construct a view of ourselves in defiance of the most obvious facts. We want to think we're something, and everybody else seems to get the, get the memo that we're not. We, just don't see, we seem to be the only ones that don't see what everybody else sees. But John Stott defines humility as having an honest view of yourself. That's what the Greek word to be humbled means, to rightly see. There's an honesty about who we are, that we're not all we purport to be. We're not all that we hope others see us to be. That we're, it's, it's good to stop and say, who, who am I really? And again, it flies counterintuitive to self-esteem and self-worth. It doesn't have to, but we have to get a a right view of ourselves. So how do we do this? How do we get a right view of ourselves? Well, first, you can begin to practice confession of sin. You practice confession of sin every day. Think through the spheres of relationships I have with God, I have with Carol, I have with my family, I have with the church, I have with community. Where have I been lustful? Where have I been angry? Where have I been bitter? Where have I been unforgiving? Where have I been proud? And, and, and I, I dig, you know, David Paulson says, take your own soul to task. I take my soul out and I say, okay, so where have you been this day? And, and I confess my sins. And as I confess my sins, there's a natural humility that comes. This is who I really am. I'm confessing these before God, confessing pride. It's really essential to do. And if you have trouble, again, invite someone in. Do you realize that Francis of Assisi would assign one monk every day to walk with him and point out his faults? This is when he became popular. He received great acclaim. He would assign one monk to say, I want you to tell me where you see my faults. Uh, He knows he needs it. He needs the help. It's hard to see ourselves, so we invite others in. This is a dangerous thing to do if you're timid and shy. It's dangerous. But I tell you, it's life-giving. You know, Jack Miller had this old famous line I've used a thousand times, but it's a cheer up, you're worse than you think. So cheer up, you're worse than you think. So when, when people have said things to me, maybe in a, in a corrective way, Or admonishing way that maybe I haven't done this that or the other thing very well in my mind I just say it's a lot worse if you lift the hood That's all I'm gonna say to you if you lift the hood You're gonna see monsters in there that will probably scare you from coming to the church again, but cheer up You're worse than you think you know, there's humility that comes when we confess our sins, but not just confess our sins Also consider the brevity of your life. Now, the staff always chides me that I'm always talking about death. I don't want to always be talking about death. I just want to remind you time's really going fast. And and life really goes clicking along really quickly. And so we want to make amends as we do. Consider how brief your life is. You and I are finite. We've been born. We're going to die. There is a limited time we have. The years pass quickly. I know when you're suffering, time stops. I totally get it. But, but it, it quickly picks up again, and, and it moves along. James, we have these words, he says, Come now, you who say, tomorrow or today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you don't even know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live, and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. We used to have a dear saint that died many years ago at this church that would always say, if the Lord wills, if the Lord wills. We don't say that anymore. But it's kind of that presumption of if God wills. I mean, I can't say I'm doing this tomorrow because I don't know if I'll get out of bed. Now, I probably will. I have a long time, but one day I won't. And it's probably going to be sooner than you think. It's boasting just to think we're just going to keep clicking along. So there's value in reminding yourself of the brevity of life. Another thing to help us understand who we really are, read history, read biographies. I mean, when you begin to see the saints, the men and women of old who have done so much and have suffered so greatly, and yet they've been faithful, I'm humbled. I'm humbled. I I couldn't even shine the shoes of other pastors of the bygone day. I couldn't even do it. I mean, so, so read history, understand your place, recognize. I, I'm a cog, just a real small cog, but it's a big and glorious wheel. I want to be there. But, but read history, read biographies, the great men and women of the past. So this is how we humble ourselves. But it takes us time. We have to be contemplative. We have to get away from the screen. We have to get away from all the other activities that busy us. And we have to think. And that's what I'm asking you to do. And and then thirdly, I would say serve others. Serve others helps develop humility. Serving others, by that I mean doing things for people that you might not normally do. or, Or doing things that you might not normally want to do. But you're going to do it for somebody else. Uh, maybe it's folding chairs. Maybe it's serving a meal. Maybe it's, but, but serving people will cultivate humility in you. And you can serve people with their words. I, I've learned this from Carol over the years. Uh, when the Amazon guy will come, she'll run right out. Thank you for doing that. And she'll give him a water or she'll offer the Amazon guy a, a Coke or a wh- whatever. But she's always saying, or the cashier at the food line, thanks for being here. Thanks for doing this. You did a great job. And th- that's a type of service where we are humbling ourselves under those who are serving us, and it cultivates a humility in us. And, and then last, I was saying, this is the important one, and I know you're already here, but it's to boast in Christ. Uh, to boast, and what I mean by that is, you know, when you think about Jesus Christ, when Paul speaks about the humility of Christ, he says in Philippians 2.5, he says, Have this mind among yourselves that is in Christ, Jesus who did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. That's the opposite of pride. We grasp. We grasp to be divine. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. We want to grasp that. We want to be God. But he didn't. He humbled himself. It says he humbled himself and became poor, even taking the form of a servant. And it says he humbled himself even to the point of death. So the cross of Christ is what older theologians used to call the humiliation of Christ, is the cross of Christ, that he hung there for our sins. The cross is not, it's not a declaration of our worth or potential. The cross is a declaration of our sin and our brokenness. So, so, so the cross isn't something, we don't start, John Stott says, we don't start looking at the cross by it's something done for us. No, it's something done by us. We nailed him to the cross with our sins. That's what we deserve, what he got. And so when you look at the cross, you get a picture of who we really are before the eyes of God. That will humble us. That's what it took to save me. That's what he bore for my sins. So so, so that, that kind of takes the foundation out of any sort of pride or arrogance. In other words, we ought to know how we've been saved if you know how God has reconciled you to himself through the cross, it's going to bring humility in because you're going to see how needy you are. That's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians to a church that was very proud, very arrogant, very divided as well. He says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. So God is just, by nature, counterintuitive. He is choosing the lowest of things. Why? He says, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ. Because of him and his mercy. So we didn't wake up and become religiously intelligent and move. No, it's because of him you are in Christ, who became to us the wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. All those things are ours, not because we're striving so hard, but because he's so gracious. So that as it's written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So here we have this, we have pride is exposed, uh, pride is revealed as being dangerous, dethroning God, dividing ourselves, destroying us, ultimately keeping us from seeing the glory of the cross. And then we see this pathway. So friends, join with me, even this week, even, even make promise. And, and, and covenant with God to make one change. I'm going I'm I'm to move towards a greater fear of you, or I'm going to spend more time trying to get an honest appraisal of myself, or I'm going to move in service to one person this week. Just start small. I'm going to boast more in the cross. I'm going to consider the cross. I'm going to sing. When we sing, all glory be to Christ, it's going to come out louder and with more meaning and value. And, and folks, it says in 22, the reward for humility, And fear of the Lord is riches, honor, and life. That's what we want. So let's take a moment and ask God to, by the power of His Spirit, to apply these truths to our soul, that it yields change, not increased knowledge. And I'll pray for us in just a moment.